This is Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Tonight's show is The Political Act of Sharing. Our music today comes from the saxophonist and composer Matt Otto. This is Forces and Relations, off of the 1999 release Red. Once solidarity referred to a workers' movement against authoritarian controls by the state and capitalist economies, and the shared sense of identity that labor gave in the struggle against class hierarchies, today's movements against oppression require envisioning and committing to new ways to share the political strength to stand up and say no. For today's show, producer Brady Heberlin speaks with Kristen Ross, professor of comparative literature at New York University, about her work defining those ways. One way is what Ross calls the luxury of the commune, a luxury of shared action and shared living, of shared becoming, in the Paris Commune of 1871. But she finds others in new movements that have formed in France, like that of the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vests, and what was the occupational attempt to block the construction of an international airport in farmland in western France, the ZAD, or the Zone to Defend, outside of Notre Dame de Lande. Kristen Ross is the author of several books. Among them are Communal Luxury, The Political Imaginary of the Paris Commune, The Emergence of Social Space, Crambeau and the Paris Commune, and most recently she's translated and written a preface to The Zad and Notav, Territorial Struggles in the Making of the New Political Intelligence, published by Verso last year. We begin in the reactionary 80s with what Ross calls the intentional disappearance of the revolutionary tradition in scholarship, and then we move ahead to the movement of the squares. And now, the transformative act of sharing with Kristen Ross on Interchange on WFHB. Kristen, do you want to tell us broadly a bit about your work to start and what you're sort of working on right now? Well, I got started in the uh, 1980s with a book about poetry in the commune. And you have to understand that at the time, uh, this was a very counter-revolutionary period. And I found myself interested in precisely those political moments that were being actively disappeared by the general dominant trends in scholarship and in, in political thought generally. So, you know, and these would be moments like May 68 or the Paris Commune of 1871. The whole uh, revolutionary tradition, um, which is so important in France 
at the time that I was starting out was really being um, not just muted, but but actively sort of uh, destroyed, disappeared, forgotten, you know, through all sorts of ways that I found it very interesting to consider. How are these, um, you know, extremely important moments, historical moments, how do they get disappeared? What are the rhetorical devices that people use? to do that and why. So that was my project and that brought me to the Paris Commune. And then more recently, I returned to the topic because of the uh, political events of 2011, the so-called movement of the squares, Occupy, everywhere in the world, it seemed as though, you know, people were going about the process of standing up and, and seizing uh, the space around them that had been made private and rendering it uh, a public kind of um, collective project again. And um, this, to me, uh, brought the Paris Commune back very vividly, and I decided to go back in the light of the current events and uh, look again at, at it as a kind of archive of usable ideas and practices that we could make use of in some way. In communal luxury, for example, one thing that you seem to really be playing with is like the staging of different characters and figures. And so just to, you know, build on what you're saying about these ideas and things that are happening that are being disappeared, can you say a little bit about that method that you're working with across your work of staging the pieces of literature or the figures? I think that when you're looking at past events and you're trying to perceive them again after they've been forgotten or after they've been, as I said, sort of disappeared, you have to restage them. You have to sort of denaturalize all of the cliches and all of the um, ways in which people have talked about how they began or, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of mythologies that surround uh, revolutionary moments. And in order to break through that and, and actually make them vivid or vivid for us, you know, vivid in a way that we can actually perceive, you have to really undo actively uh, a lot of the, the ways in which, particularly in school, but not just in school, often in in radical milieu, you, you learn a lot of these kinds of cliches that you have to get rid of. So what I like to do frequently is, is play around with the chronology, uh, begin the story somewhere else, you know, um, begin it in a way that it hasn't, you know, isn't traditionally begun, or uh, extend the ending, you know, really ask yourself, when did it end? Maybe it never quite ended. Uh, and also play around with the cast of characters, definitely, so that they are um, the the expected people that you you think of as being at the center of a narrative are not necessarily the ones that can help us perceive the event in a new way. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is the transformative act of sharing about new forms of sociability. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with Kristen Ross, translator of a book about the Zod, or Zones to Defend, in France, a movement to block land development by government fiat. 
to go back to some of the topics of the talk that you gave here at IU and the beginning of October, it seemed like your point about land defense is also this kind of like staging. So talking about the Zod and that being an effort to defend something which already exists, which people already have and then and thus have power in. Um, and so I want to ask you a question about something from your Zod and Notov book. Uh, in the introduction to the Zod and Notov territorial struggles and making of a new political intelligence, you're making a prediction about future political struggles against social inequality, saying that they will be embedded or conjugated on struggles to conserve the living. And the quote that you know many people that read the book and were talking about it found really pointed is the quote that defending the conditions for life on the planet has become the new and incontrovertible horizon of meaning for all political struggle. And so here in Bloomington and across the U.S., um, we're really seeing the rise of eco-fascism that combines environmentalism and social inequality with a fascist definition of life. Can you unpack what it means for a defense of the conditions for life on the planet to be the horizon of meaning of all political struggle? Um, and what do you make of ecofascism? Okay, well, first I'm going to have to ask you to tell me what ecofascism is because it's not a term that I'm that familiar with, or or a you know a reality. I don't know exactly what you mean by it. So here in Bloomington, for example, we have the presence of you know neo Nazis at our farmers market who really make a brand out of preparing against against climate catastrophe, but for the survival of white majority, white ethnostate uh, groups of people. And so unlike the left climate crisis approaches that we often see, this is a far-right group uh, or like a far-right tendency of people to organize around the climate crisis and around life, but not all life, life, but but white life. Life that's been hierarchized. Yes, precisely. Okay, well then, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I mean, it's a little different in the sense of uh, someone like Christian Parenti, for example, talks about um, lifeboatism, you know, uh, but he's really talking about the super rich, and I don't think you're talking about the super rich at all if you're talking about sort of fascist farmers. The way Parenti would divide things up would be that in the current ecological crisis, you either have a situation of people taking their collective affairs in common and managing them, and that would be a, a, the example of the Zod, or something like a barbaric future where, you know, the super rich buy up all the national natural resources that are available as they're doing in the area where I live in upstate New York, you know, just buying mountains or uh, cornering um, all of the clean water of the of the area. Now, that's what I see as a kind of ecofascism, but it's not. I don't think it's quite the same as what you're talking about in Bloomington. That seems like a, another example of a very similar tendency. And I I think with both, we're really asking ourselves how how the fight for the living and the sort of uh, way that that is the that's the language of any struggle that's coming into being right now. How does that differentiate itself from fights that have this sort of biopolitical nature of being about the living of the elite, about the living based on race? You know, how does right. it address things like climate refugees or social inequality? Yeah, no, I think I think you're right in the long run. And and what we're really talking about is something like a class difference within the the eco-fascist tendencies, you know, where you have a kind of 
again, the sort of super rich uh, and what they can do as opposed to what, you know, the people in Bloomington that you're talking about in the farmer's market can do. Um, but to get back to the uh, what I meant by um, defending the conditions of life on the planet and having that be this this sort of um, way in which social inequality gets addressed is through putting you know the defense of the living at the center of the struggle. Uh, the first thing to say, I think, is that you are talking about defense and you're not talking about resistance, which is. Um, especially after, you know, Trump was elected, everyone began to say, oh, we must resist, we must resist. And I, <laughs> I always thought that that was just the end of the battle, you know, because you're saying you're attributing so much power to the other side. Whereas if you start from the activity of defending, you're, you're saying, wait, we have something, you know, we have something already that's worth defending. And that is, um, you know, is, is something that uh, we cherish and that, that, um, that we as a community, well, the defense creates the community, actually, because it brings the people together around the activity of defense, defending um, the living, whether it be, you know, a particular uh unpolluted environment or farmland or, or, uh, or even, you know, in the case of, you know, uh, Valparaiso, Chile, uh, recently, you know, um, people managed to get the government to back down after 10 years of its threat to just cover over the entire historic waterfront of, of the, of, you know, a working waterfront with docks and land and, and, um, and, and an amazing coalition of people struggled for 10 years. And these were people that didn't have that much in common. See, you know, so it would be like dock workers and artists or students and, uh, urbanists or, you know, the groups like this that came together and created a, a, a kind of community of defense. It's time for a break. This is Transformation by Matt Otto off the 2010 album La Commune. When we come back, the solidarity formed of defending a community space when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is the transformative act of sharing with Kristen Ross, author of Communal Luxury about the Paris Commune of 1871, and most recently translator of a book about the French zones to defend, or ZAD. In this segment, episode producer Brady Heberlin asks about the ways defense creates identity in the struggle against a named enemy. One example is the fight against Monsanto's herbicide glyphosate. about how the process of defense is creating community out of people who might otherwise not have that much in common? Well, it's, you know, what you have in common is a shared enemy, first of all, and we can call it by many names. You know, we could call it the capitalist international, for example, uh, or we could call it as the, uh, the mayor of a small village in France just calls it Monsanto. And in his case, you know, he looked in, around and he found out that he tested the urine of uh, the school children and it had 30 times the amount of glyphosate that they're supposed to have. And he passed a law forbidding Roundup for X number of, you know, yards or, or miles or something of any house in the village. Now, Macron immediately overturned that law or a judge representing the state did said the mayor was not competent to make such a, he was not competent to pass a law like that. But by the time it was overturned, 40 other mayors had passed the same law. So you have an amazing, what, what, what interests me is in this, I mean, we're, 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 we'll get back to composition, but one of the things about uh, these kinds of uh, local instanti- instantiations of a kind of commune or commune form is that they can be extended. And that's a process that interests me a great deal. I, and I think really composition was invented by the Zod in a sense because they were forced to work together and do it in such a way that very, very different modes of political activism and processes and were transpiring at exactly the same time. So you had people who were nonviolent and convinced that the only way they would win was through the courts. So you had people down at the courts for years and years filing, you know, you had naturalists who thought that by charting the, you know, the flora and fauna and the disappearing species, that that would work. You had black bloc anarchists who deeply believed in frontal violent confrontation with the police. You had farmers who, who simply felt that by continuing actively the, the rhythm of farming, that that, you know, in and of itself was creating a temporality of defense. Now, all you had elected officials, you know, who were who were political hacks. You had petty bourgeois shopkeepers who didn't want an airport next to their shop. Uh, all of these very, very different ways of going about uh, a shared goal. They had to figure out how to do it in such a way that they weren't, you know, crushing each other constantly or locked into just endless, endless battles about the superiority of one's way, you know, as the, so they found a way to let everyone pursue 
the the political modus operandi that that each group had decided was you know what they wanted to do and this i think is is fascinating because uh in radical milieu and in in the left in general so much time is usually spent um critiquing people for their ideological uh failings of various kinds you know um that has been the history of the left, a kind of lived sectarianism that so frequently has has just been counterproductive. And I think now what people are recognizing is that the um, generalized, you know, catastrophic situation that we're in makes for a shared experience that is much more important than any kind of you know, different differences of opinion that have been exaggerated in the past. This is Interchange. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with NYU professor Kristen Ross about how distinct and often contrary modes of activism can operate together to compose a new form of solidarity against a named oppressor or enemy. organizing today, we often hear something like that referred to as diversity of tactics, so sort of a libertarianism toward each other or something where we see somebody taking one strategy and we're sort of like, okay, we'll let them be. But it seems like composition is really different than that. Like people aren't being indifferent towards each, each other's strategies, but trying to be complementary. Did you get that sense at the Zod or in your studies with the Paris Commune? You know, it wouldn't be that the, the Commune is a little different because you're still back there in the 19th century, you still have a solidarity that's really based on the world of work. You know, at that time, the, the, the Workers International, what could create solidarity among people from different national backgrounds was the idea that they shared common interests because of their position as workers. And that's, I think, what's changed now and what makes the something like uh, the composition that occurred at the Zad so interesting is that it's not work that's brought people together. And I think we can generalize from that, that it's not, this is not, the world of work is not exactly what we share now. It's not the basis for the solidarity that we need to construct. We're dealing with a much more generalized dispossession. It's not simply that the surplus value of our labor is being stolen by capitalists. That's certainly true. I mean, there's nothing that has changed about that. Marx is still right. But we're talking about, you know, the dispossession of meaning uh, in what we do, our professional activities, the a deep political dispossession, dispossession of our dignity, territorial dispossession, dispossession of our time or the ability to manage our future collectively. All of this is part of the effect of capitalism, but um, all of these sites of dispossession can also be sites of insubordination, and that's what happened at the Zod. They turned the place that they lived into a site of insubordination, and that's very different from a factory situation or even, even the Paris Commune, because 
as I say, we're really talking about a pretty consistent, say, sociological profile or something of artisanal workers. You know, that's that's who made the commune. And and at the Zod, it was made by very, very different kinds of people. You did mention that the Zod in some ways seems to have created composition, this mode of engaging with one another in these many different both strategies and interests in the point of struggle or the thing that is being defended. Can you say a little bit more about what you saw in terms of how people engaged across those different strategies? So how were the naturalists and the farmers working together or the black bloc anarchists and the people who were, you know, working with the courts and with the sort of legal process? What did composition look like at the Zod? It looked to me to be extremely exhausting. (laughs) I have to be frank, you know, I, and until you're used to it, until you're, you know, it, it involves endless discussion, endless discussion, you know, meetings that last six hours. I'm not saying that, you know, that this was constantly true, but sometimes it involved that. I think the moments when uh, composition worked the best uh, were when the threat was the greatest, you know, for example, when the state went in in 2012, and uh, and an actual physical battle ensued that lasted over a month, where the people at the Zod managed to keep the police at bay. And and there, of course, then you have an amazing amount of coming together and solidarity. And it's much more difficult when um, when the police are in the distance, <laughs> when they're not right there at your doorstep. I think that the hard part is is that. You have to um, you have to disidentify to a certain extent from uh, what what has grounded your own political uh, sense of yourself in order to to be open to working together in that way with people using different modes. But at the same time, it's not about just merging into one big happy family at all. It's it's really the uh the opposite um there's there's a lot of conflict there's a lot of tension but you you work through it not necessarily to get to a higher place but to simply find a way that each can can carry on and sometimes actually find a new goal that both are engaged in I think that's a really helpful way of getting at this difference, too, between the diversity of tactics and composition, which is sort of the step outside of oneself so it's not people just sort of revolving or orbiting around each other as they are, but in some sense changing what they are and becoming something else. Yes, absolutely. I think that's one of the most interesting things about these kinds of situated battles, situated experiences. I mean, there's a real existential dimension to it. You know, I'll give you an example. Here in New York, a lot of young people, especially in the city, are very drawn to democratic socialism and it's it's a big slogan and it's you know fine great but it's very possible to have that be your slogan and have absolutely no change in your life you can continue on doing exactly what you've always been doing including becoming a a hedge fund manager or something like that there's no existential change and i think in these situations where you're actually living and fighting at the same time or finding out new ways of you know uh overcoming the separation between inhabiting and struggle it's it's it involves definite existential change 
It's time for another break. This is Paris Commune, another from Matt Otto, off of the 2010 release La Commune. Stay with us for more on the transformative act of sharing when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about the forms of solidarity and sociability in opposition to authoritarianism, fascism, and capitalism. Episode producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with Kristen Ross, author of the 2015 book Communal Luxury, the political imaginary of the Paris Commune, about the daily activities of sharing life and how these shape the ways people become future political beings. So if you don't mind, I want to ask a question about communal luxury, just going back to the Paris Commune as a site that has a really interesting way of playing with hierarchies and starting from where people are, like you said, uh, as workers and artisans at that time. So in communal luxury, you're noting that the, the world is divided between those who can and those who cannot afford the luxury of playing with words and images. And that at the time just preceding the Paris Commune, uh, the, the communards were, you know, they were they were in entrenched hierarchies that they then inverted, especially between manual and artistic and intellectual labor. Um, can you say more about what it meant to invert entrenched hierarchies and division in daily life in the Paris Commune? Well, I think the best example of that is what happened within the Artists' Federation. They decided, the artists and artisans of the Commune, they decided to come together around the notion that they're there's really only one kind of artistic intelligence and it pertains to every activity that every activity is potentially an aesthetic activity or an artistic activity. And in that sense, this was a major overturning of the, the hierarchy that's at the center of artistic production in the 19th century, which was that the only art that counts is fine art. The only art that counts is oil painting and sculpture. Those are that's art, and everything else is a is an activity that is classified as 
skilled labor. And the skilled laborer cannot sign their artistic production. They don't have the right to a signature. They don't have the right to enter the market with what they've produced. They are merely skilled laborers. So that um, what the commune arts did was completely erase that distinction and say there is no difference between a lace maker, for example, and an oil painter. Um, there, there is no difference between a, a ceramics, someone who works in bronze and someone who, you know, someone who makes little chains for jewelry or someone who, a painter like Gustave Courbet. So, so this was an amazing kind of process of self-emancipation, really, and making visible that kind of emancipation. So a shoemaker was put in charge of barricade construction and he went to town. I mean, he really, he considered, uh, he, he came up with fabulous designs for these barricades and, and, uh, was completely involved in theorizing them, making them, you know, designing them, constructing them, every aspect of the process, you know, without any kind of way in which it's usually, you know, divided up between the architect's plan and then the people putting the, the rocks and stones together as though there were, um, you know, a head and a hand. Head and hands must be in two different worlds. So that was, the, that was uh, really what the, what the communards did. And um, it's something that was at the, the basis of, you know, the demand of working class culture at the time. They wanted, you, you could see it again in their ideas about education. They believed that every child, and remember, this is like 1871, so this is an amazing kind of a demand, but they, they believed that every child, regardless of gender and regardless of class, and the class is really the most kind of significant here, must learn a trade at the same time that they learn math and theory and poetry and everything else that we consider sort of, you know, university education, everyone had to do both. Everyone had to come out of their education, being able to work with their hands, being able to do perform a particular trade, uh, you know, carpentry or, or plumbing or something like that at the same time that they might decide to write a book. And uh, this was something that, you know, this was completely uh, getting at the, the kind of deep-seated destiny whereby if you were a shoemaker, you were a shoemaker because your father was a shoemaker and your grandfather was a shoemaker and there was no way out. So in the short time that they had, they went very far in kind of overturning the education that was in place and putting into place these kinds of ideas. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Kristen Ross, author of The Emergence of Social Space, Rambeau and the Paris Commune. She's speaking with episode producer Brady Heberlin about the working existence of daily life as a form of political becoming.
One of the people that you note in communal luxury is having a large role with that is Poirier. And he and Gayard, the shoemaker, are both really good examples of what Marx called the working existence of the Paris Commune, right? Because Poirier was both doing uh, education, like these sort of educational texts and whatnot, and then also having like many other roles in the Paris Commune. Um, and I'm wondering if you can say a little more about how your staging of these figures allows us to see what they were able to become in the Paris Commune. Well, you know, if you look at uh, standard textbook or narrations of the Commune, they tend to spend a lot of time on the haggling uh, that occurred uh, as they tried to pass various kinds of laws and you know, in, in other words, procedures of sort of governmentality. And they also spend a lot of time on the military uh, defense against, you know, the Versailles. I thought that you really couldn't get to see what Marx meant by the, the working existence unless you pushed those two aspects, as well as the massacre that ended the commune, and put those to the side in order to actually see what daily life was like. And daily life consi consisted of the kinds of things I was talking about, you know, you know, something like the women's union, which was the most effective and largest uh, group in the commune. And um, this was just seamstress women working together with uh, various kinds of international foreigners who'd come in. And um, working to, at the same time, to kind of improve uh, women's labor, but also just to fill the sa sandbags and <laughs> um, build the barricades and, you know, everything that was necessary right at the moment. I guess what I'm also wondering if you saw that the Zod experimenting with the similar inversion and was it sort of the hand and heart inversion or was something else being played with there? I was struck. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in France, and I, the first time I went to the Zad, I really thought, this is a place, this is the most feminine place I've been in France. And it was clear to me that, that I'm not sugarcoating anything, because I think that they had to work very, very hard to get to that point, and they had a lot of trouble, you know, they, they were, I mean, when you're trying to live in a group, you're always going to be dealing very intimately with certain kinds of gender aggression and, and things like that, but they had worked on it, you know, and it was clear that, you know, the women were, that's, were theorists, they were, they were fixing the tractors, they were, you know, the, the guys were working with the the little kids and the babies, you know, I mean, it was, it was a very, very, um, impressive sort of, uh, atmosphere on the, at the level of gender. That was one inversion that I noticed right away. And then I think that the whole idea that I tried to develop in communal luxury about, about, uh, this idea of not just a more equitable distribution of, of, the resources, but in fact, each person having the best of everything. I felt that very strongly there because they, they also, there's an amazing amount of, of joy that comes from, you know, having 
really just abandoned quite a lot of the trappings of 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 the aggravations of of life under capital you know i mean when you when you put salaried labor far away or you don't have the general kinds of forms of competition that come with salary wage labor it it opens up a lot of possibilities and people are able to be much more creative they're able to be more um at at once more autonomous and find new ways of social being social with each other uh so i i did feel that there were a lot of kinds of um, there was a, there was a sort of physical intensity and a physical density that um, comes from people being actively involved in building something together uh, that I found very exciting and very appealing. It was a little hard for me because I'm used to being alone much of the time. You know, that's just the way I live. So I was forced. <laughs> I was forced into socializing constantly and I found it, I found that exhausting as well. I'm much more exhausting than just participating in the haying. I sort of enjoyed that. Did you see a kind of inversion with regard to the, you know, the way that politics and the left work in France? Are they similar in the sense that it would be unusual to not be all on the same page? And so by having a compositional approach, there's, there's an inversion there or I think probably uh, sectarianism is something that is common to the left everywhere. You know, being able to you know let go of that or, you know, not make that a major part of, of how you get along uh, together. I don't know, you know, that, that, that doesn't seem particularly French or, or to me, but um, the the business about composition is that it's just simply absolutely necessary when you have these prolonged, um, you know, situated living experiences. I, I imagine I don't know that much about Chiapas, but I I suppose if you were to look at Chiapas, um, okay, yes, it's you have a kind of a. a an indigenous group that's dominant or something like that. But even within that, I, I think that you would have to have some degree of composition as long as you're actually, you know, living together and living in a sharing space, sharing tasks, all of that. It changes everything. It's time for our final break. This is Workday, off of Matt Otto's 1999 release, Red. More on communal luxury with Kristen Ross when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. For our final segment on the transformative act of sharing, episode producer Brady Heberlin talks to Kristen Ross about how when people unknown to each other gather together in the face of a negative experience, they can form new associations of solidarity and sociability. So just a, as one last point about this sort of inversion in the in the Paris Commune. Um, so you said at the Zod, one of the main inversions that you saw was was this question of gender and of gender, you know, equity. Um, what points of inversion do you see in other struggles today, um, and what kind of capacities are they mobilizing? I think that take another French example. The the Gilets Jaunes are an amazingly interesting movement that came absolutely out of nowhere in the sense that these were not people like the people at the Zods, people that were really part of the system. And they really, you know, they had crummy jobs, but they, they had never been political before. They had never been to a demonstration. And then suddenly out of the blue, they started to gather in these traffic circles on the outskirts of their individual towns. And these are bleak, areas. I mean, these are, you can imagine, they're just surrounded by big box stores and giant, you know, supermarkets and, and uh, you know, exhaust from trucks. And so they started to gather there and suddenly they formed a kind of solidarity. They hadn't known each other before, but what they, they shared was this sort of experience of generalized dispossession that I mentioned before, you know, that, that they knew that no matter what they did, nothing would get better for them unless they figured out how to work together and how to uh, come up with a bigger view of what they could do politically. So I, I think that uh, as far as an inversion, I mean, there you're, you're overcoming what is the biggest in obstacle at all, which is the idea that, that you can have agency and that you can uh, create. I was very moved by these, you know, the, they first they would gather and then they would bring cough, you know, picnic tables and soon they were building little huts and soon they were, you know, they had taken over these spaces and that they had formed them into everyone wanted to come there and, and, and they were no longer bleak. They were absolutely, you know, the place to be in the town. And, and once that happened, you know, Macron immediately uh, outlawed them. He immediately said that these gathering places could no longer exist. You know, so the response of the state is one measure of how powerful these kinds of forms of, of sociability and meeting, simply meeting up with people that you haven't, you know, that have not been part of your life before, you know, that they, that, that, but that with whom it turns out that you share an incredible amount of uh, essentially negative experience <laughs> and you transform that into some, uh, into a kind of a new form of association. These are, this is what interests me are the new forms of association. Yeah. And it seems like those were, those are continuing even to be very, you know, plentiful in the Gilets Jaunes movement. And I've heard, you know, about the, for example, the the Black Vest movement, which are all of these migrants who are now saying like, okay, here's our shared experience. Despite major, major differences across 
where people are migrating from and what their experience of the, you know, uh, immigration system in, in Europe and in France in particular has been. Um, and that kind of brings us to the point about solidarity, which you touch on throughout your work, both with regard to the Paris Commune, the Zod, 1980s France and Japan, um, and also in reference to Rimbaud's poetry as a relationship to oneself that is distinct from the relationships we form under capitalism. And so you're specifically describing solidarity as this revolutionary strategy. Um, are there particular practices of solidarity in land-based struggles or otherwise that have inspired you? Yeah, I think, once again, you have to go back to the example of the 19th century where work was at the basis of how people achieved any kind of solidarity with each other. And that was also the moment when everyone decided that workers were the lone social group that were destined to make revolution. Right? They were the working class would make revolution. And that is what I think is gone now. You know, we don't, we don't have, how many of us have true solidarity with, with, you know, Chinese workers making computers in, in uh, the People's Republic? I mean, this is, it, that's what would be necessary if that old model of solidarity was what existed. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Show producer Brady Heberlin is speaking with Kristen Ross about new forms of sociability and solidarity that must take the place of what was once the sole providence of the worker as cohesive identity. You do have to get back to that notion of... uh not only just transforming the world, but also changing one's life. And and to do that, you have to let go a little bit of what, you know, whatever anchored your sense of your political identity was. And I think that the ecological crisis of today uh, makes it such a necessary that, you know, that we find forms of solidarity that are not necessarily um, based on uh, work, but which are anchored in, you know, concrete, ordinary experience. And, and that's why I think the rebirth of these kinds of situated struggles is so interesting is because they are the example of a kind of, you know, politics from below or the, the ability to show a collective capacity to organize on the basis of where we live, for example, you know, that that can be not in a NIMBY kind of a way, but, but more, um, on the basis of our, you know, our concrete experience as people of very, uh, again, of very different kinds of modes of political action, but who are inhabiting a place and being inhabited by that place. And that that can be, um, maybe the best weapon uh, against the sort of abstraction of the state and the abstraction of the market is, is just this concrete experience of inhabiting a particular region and defending it. There's something about that that's captured in this sort of slogan that was going around at the Zod, the Simta Zod, like planting your own Zod. And so in some ways, just because of how that will be different across space, the Zod takes on this sort of 
grounded abstraction and that it can be in many places and always different or something. I guess with solidarity, you know, if we're imagining, you know, something like the Zod in many other places, which we've seen in some capacity, um, I wanted to ask how we can meaningfully apply solidarity in a way that's different than the Paris Commune, but builds on what we see at the Zod in today's revolutionary strategy. What are the sort of connections, like, you know, solidaristic connections that you're that you're seeing today? You know, one time I was in the forest uh, down at Notre Dame des Landes and I turned a corner and suddenly there were six Mexicans there and they had come from Chiapas. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, very conscious effort made to create these kinds of uh, intersections between various movements, especially at the international level, that sometimes it's to transmit different kinds of knowledges and solutions to very pragmatic practical problems you know what do you do about someone who's just behaving in a completely antisocial way that's a hard problem you know uh what do you do with the people who think that their dogs should be able to live free and run wherever they want including through troops of baby lambs and you know killing the baby lambs these are very practical kinds of problems that come up and that and often you need certain models. You need to be able to communicate with other people that are engaged in not necessarily the same identical kinds of problems, but there's a set of different problems that come up regularly in these situations and which means that there is a lot of communication between groups. And that there's a kind of um, sometimes subterranean sorts of trajectories between these groups. And that's very interesting. And then there's that also the possibility of, of extension that I mentioned earlier, where once you have, you know, a particular defense of the living that's been implemented, uh, it can it can become an example it can become, it can change our ideas about what's possible. It can change our ideas by giving us a, a kind of practical illustration of, you know, what life might be like if economic rationality is not the only rationality or is not the dominant rationality, that there are other, you know, rationalities that can prevail. The fabric of kind of lived solidarities that seems to extend and link together all these forms of action across really vast distances and, and across now national, you know, in distances. And I remember, you know, at a certain point in the Zod, they were, they were looking for models and a lot of them found uh, Chiapas, you know, to be really inspiring. They went to Chiapas. They, they, you know, established relations with the people there. And then other groups at the Zod found the Paris Commune to be very inspiring. And so they made a kind of historical voyage, um, you know, just studying and looking at that as you know, kind of involved in this notion of communal luxury. So, you know, there's always going to be a way in which you're reaching out and, and looking at possible models that are either of a historical or a contemporary nature but that in and of itself is a is a form of solidarity with the dead you know
That's our show. We'll close with another from Matt Otto. This is Revolution, off of Q Trio, Volume 1. Thanks to Krista Ross for joining us to discuss her work on the rising tide of sociability and solidarity against the generalized dispossession of the capitalist state. We need new forms of political sharing to fight oppression, the luxury of communalism versus that of capitalist materialism. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Doug Storm. Our show is produced by the Interchange Collective. The political act of sharing was produced by Brady Heberlin. Sean Milligan was the audio editor. Kate Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.